Hello, this is Richard Simmons at the Center for Executive Leadership in Birmingham, Alabama. Today I'm talking about pride and humility. This is part one in a four-part series. I hope you enjoy it. This morning I'm going to begin a new series on the issue of uh, pride and humility. In the first two weeks we're going to look at the issue of pride and just how deadly it is in our lives. And then uh, the final two weeks or the final two sessions we'll look at God's promises to those who live humbly um, as they walk through life. And there will be a major application in the, in the fourth session. And where I thought I might start today is to look at <clears throat> some scripture. I want to start with the uh, book of Isaiah in the second chapter beginning in the twelfth verse. It says, For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty, and against everyone who is lifted up, that he may be abased. And it will be against all the cedars of Lebanon that are lofty and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, against all the hills that are lifted up, against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft, the pride of man will be humbled, and the loftiness of men will be abased, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. I also want to look at uh, one other verse, and this will come from the book of Proverbs, uh, the 16th chapter, uh, the 5th verse. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not go unpunished. Throughout the scripture, uh, you'll see a phrase, uh, which we'll uh, talk about in, in some of our future sessions. And that phrase is this, God is opposed to the proud. Now, I think we all uh, have this uh, desire to know, well, who are the proud? Surely not me. I know there are a lot of proud and arrogant people out there, but surely not me. And where I want to start this morning is to go through a couple of definitions, uh, beginning with the word pride, because there are often some misunderstandings about this word. Uh, there are two definitions in Webster's. One of them is justifiable self-respect, the idea of striving for excellence and being the best that you can be, the idea of taking pride in what you do. And that's a, a positive definition. But the, the pride that God detests, the pride that is such an abomination in His sight, is arrogance. And arrogance is nothing more than an, etern an internal feeling or impression of superiority over others. The Greeks called it hubris, which, is which meant too high a view of yourself. In C.S. Lewis's uh, wonderful classic, Mere Christianity, he has an entire chapter on pride, and, and it's interesting uh, it comes in book three. Uh, Mere Christianity is divided into four books. And book three, which is called Christian Behavior. And he lists all these chapters like the cardinal virtues, social morality, sexual morality, Christian marriage, forgiveness, charity, hope. But when he comes to the issue of pride, he doesn't call the chapter pride. Ironically, he calls it the great sin. And I want to read to you a couple of paragraphs from this chapter. He says, There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, and which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people 
except maybe some Christians, ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. I have heard people admit that they are bad-tempered or they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink or even that they're cowards. But I don't think I have ever heard anyone accuse himself of this vice. And at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone, other than, again, other than some Christians, who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in others. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I'm talking of is pride or self-conceit, and the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. You may, re- you may remember when I was talking about sexual morality, I warned you that the center of Christian morals did not lie there. Well, now we have come to that center. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. And then listen to this. He says, pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Now, what about humility? What about a definition for humility? I think a very few people understand true humility. But by the end of this series, I believe that every single one of you will agree that it's the most valuable quality a person can possess in all of life. And if you don't believe me, let me share this one thought with you. And we'll talk about this in one of our next sessions. One of the great business books written in the last decade was written by Jim Collins. It was a book called Good to Great. And in this book, he sought to discover how average performing companies over time became stellar, great performers. And he had this huge team of researchers and did all this research. And in there, in one of the first chapters, there is a section on leadership. It's called Level 5 Leaderships. And he says the most surprising discovery in all their research that these top cream of the crop leaders possessed two primary qualities. One was genuine humility, and the other was they were fully devoted to the mission of the company. And Colin says that was a stunning discovery to see that in the lives of leaders. Now, what is humility? Well, Webster says it means not to be arrogant. But Andrew Murray, in his wonderful little book, Humility, gives this definition, and let me, I'm going to work through this. When you, I first read it, you might, it might not really connect with you, but over the next couple of weeks, we'll kind of unravel and unwrap this definition so we do truly understand it. He says, humility is not something which we bring to God or He bestows. It is simply the sense of entire nothingness which comes when we see how truly God is all and in which we make way for God to be all. When we, the creature, realize that this is the true nobility and consents to be with his will, his mind, and his affections, the form, the vessel, in which the life and glory of God are to work and manifest themselves, he sees that humility is this, simply acknowledging the truth of his position as creature and yielding to God his place. In other words, what he's saying is where we truly understand our place in 
the universe. Now, Drayton Neighbors, in his book that will be it's to be published and released in the next few weeks, says this, Our word humility comes from the Latin term humus, meaning earth. In today's terminology, humus is the result of decomposing vegetable matter and is a common garden fertilizer. And just as humus helps our garden flourish, so the soil of humility provides a fertile source for the tree of character to grow in our lives and to bear fruit for God. Now, humility, in essence, is not a virtue. It's the root of all other virtues. Now, where I want to go for the balance of our time this morning is talking about pride and understanding its destructiveness. You know, I contend that pride is the greatest spiritual struggle that each of us as men is faced with. And it's so deadly because it's so insidious. In other words, it slowly grows and develops in our lives and becomes well-established without our knowledge. And it wreaks havoc in our lives and in our relationships. And as Lewis says, we see it and hate it in other people, but we believe we in no way are inflicted by this deadly, deadly thing. Now I want to get to the heart of pride, and where I want to start is to read some words written almost 3,000 years ago in the book of Ecclesiastes, the fourth chapter, the fourth verse. And I saw that all labor and all achievements spring from man's envy of his neighbor. This too is meaningless and chasing after the wind. What he's saying here is humans, instead of being satisfied and content in our work and achievement and just keeping it to ourselves, we're always looking to see how others are doing. We're always comparing ourselves with others. And in the process, we find ourselves always wanting to impress other people. And what's really struck me is in observing men's lives, regardless of the achievement or how successful a man or woman might be, we don't feel that we're successful unless other people know about it. In other words, we seek not only achievement, but proper recognition for our achievement. Now the question is, why is that? Why, why do we have to to always be comparing ourselves with others. Why is it we always want other people to know? Why are we always wondering, do I measure up compared to this other person? Well, let me go back and read to you from Lewis's chapter. He says, now what you want to get clear is this, that pride is essentially competitive. It's competitive by its very nature. While the other vices are competitive only, so to speak, by accident. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It's the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest, that attitude of superiority. And what Lewis is saying, it's not, when I go in, into, a, into a room full of other men, it's not that I want to be the best looking man or the most successful man in the world. I just want to be better looking and more successful than all of you. Now, um, Donald Miller, who is quite an interesting guy,
who's written several books, um, but one that I've just finished reading called Searching for God Knows What. Miller, is a, I would guess, is in his early 30s. Uh, for years, he was kind of a hippie. Uh, he became a Christian, and uh, he works, he lives out in Oregon and uh, works on a college campus, but has really become quite a prominent author, and he, is a, he, he has some wonderful insights. And listen to this. this is, it's, it's somewhat humorous, but uh, he's right on target. He said, I was thinking about all this the other day while my roommate Grant and I were watching a Blazers game. I was telling Grant that if I were an alien and came down to Earth from some far-off planet, there are a few things I would notice about people. And the first thing I would notice is the way they look. That is, if people look different on my planet. Then I would notice how their cities were constructed, and depending on how the civilization had advanced wherever I was from, I would notice how ahead or behind their cities happened to be. You know what I mean, mass transit and all technology and everything else. But after I got over all of this and sat down to have a beer with some people, really finding out what they were interested in, what they loved and hated, there'd be one thing I would notice that would kind of explain everything. And by everything, I mean all the stuff that makes a person want to live his life a certain way or the stuff that drives a person's thoughts, subconscious and conscious. And I was telling Grant, let's say I was an alien and I had to go back to my home planet and explain to some head of the alien nation about these people on this planet and what they were like. I told Grant I would say to the head alien, the thing that defines human personalities is they are constantly comparing themselves to one another. Grant kind of nodded at me as if he thought this was interesting. Then he took a sip of his beer and we, we went back to watching the game. But I kept thinking about this, and that night I got out of bed and wrote my thoughts down on a piece of paper, you know, as if I were an alien. Humans, as a species, are constantly and in every way comparing themselves to one another, which, given the brief nature of their exist existence, seems an oddity, and for that matter, a waste. Nevertheless, this is the driving influence behind every human's social development, their emotional health and sense of joy and sadly, their greatest tragedies. It's as though something that helped them function and live well <clears throat> has gone missing, and they are pining for that missing thing in all sorts of odd methods, none of which are working. The greater tragedy is that very few people understand that they have this disease. This seems strange as well because it is obvious, to be sure, it is killing them, and yet sustaining their social and economic systems they are an entirely beautiful people with a terrible problem. You know, what Miller is saying is that we don't determine who we are and what we're going to do with our lives. In other words, he says we allow other people to determine our identity. He's saying that we gear our lives to meet the expectations of others. And because we're always comparing ourselves and we're always comparing our accomplishments and always comparing our lifestyles and our kids with each other, he says, you know, we're always wondering, do I measure up as a man? You know, how do I compare to others? Now, there was a wonderful book written about 25 years ago. Um, it was a bestseller called The Search for Significance by a guy by the name of Robert McGee. And in the book, he lays out three probing questions that help give some clarity to this issue. And I'm, I'm, going to share, I'm going to ask these questions or share these and ask yourself, how pertinent are, these quest, pertinent are these questions to our lives? The first is, 
How much different would your life be if it were not for the fear of failure? Number two, how much different would your life be if it were not for the fear and worry of what others thought of you? In other words, think about how liberating that, that would be, is what he's saying. And finally, and this is a great question, how much of your life have you wasted trying to gain the approval of others? In other words, you know, we spend so much of our resources and our energy winning the approval of others. Now, how much of it have we wasted? Brian Mahan, who is a theologian over at uh, Emory University in Atlanta, uh, wrote a wonderful book called Forgetting Ourselves on Purpose, The Vocation and Ethics of Ambition. And he says there's a real dark side to this issue. There's a real dark side to pride in the way we compare ourselves to others. Listen to what he says. He says, in American society, individual, individual achievement is supremely important. In itself, this is neither good nor bad. It's merely part of the script. The trouble is that it becomes difficult to, to assess achievement and monitor happiness without surrendering to the impulse to adopt comparison as a prime measure of individual worth. Some comparisons are harmless enough, and many are, in any case, unavoidable. We take standardized tests. We get accepted or rejected by various degree programs. We accept a job that someone else does not get, and we lose a promotion that goes instead to a colleague. And then he says this, but there's a darker side to comparison. It's the dirty little secret of our society, and we all share in the effort to keep it under wraps. We all know the dark conversations of our hearts, if only, if only intermittently and selectively, and most of us choose to keep them to ourselves. I don't know how many of you remember <clears throat> the Mark uh, Hacking story. It's about Mark and uh, Lori Hacking, and... Uh, it didn't receive much press because it was about a, a man who killed his wife. And the reason it didn't get much press is because he admitted that he did it. And, uh, you know, the case was pretty much closed. But if you recall, it's about a husband and wife who seemed to be living a very normal life. Uh, he was in medical school, or at least that's what he appeared to be. And uh, she was, you know, living her, her life as, as a wife. Uh, and this article from the paper says, <clears throat> by all accounts, Mark Happy Hacking was fun to be around, a loving husband who wanted to be respected and, like his father, become a doctor. But in the hours that he was supposedly studying for medical exams, Hacking often was hanging out at a neighborhood store, refilling sodas, eating hot dogs, and smoking camel menthols. He got his wife to pack up and move to North Carolina so he could attend medical school, where it turns out he wasn't even enrolled. He kept textbooks spread or open around his apartment, but in fact, he dropped out of college. Years of deceptions <clears throat> are catching up to the former night shift, night shift hospital orderly, and he has become the focus of the investigation and the appearance of his wife. What happened was, the article goes on, and of course he does admit to having killed her, is that, uh, <clears throat> that she discovered and, and found out that he was faking it that he really wasn't in college after all. He really wasn't in medical school after all. And when she confronted him, instead of just owning up to it and acknowledging it, he kills his wife. And it says, 
in talking with his father, who was a very prominent physician, he says, the father says, we didn't see it coming. We got completely blindsided by it. Mark Hacking's family has described him as a kind, loving husband who may have felt driven to lie by perceived family pressures. You see, he was comparing himself to his older brothers, one who is a doctor and another who is an electrical engineer. You know, it, it's like Hacking is saying, in order to be successful, i got to be like my brothers. And you see the dark side of this and how trying to live up to some standard, to try to measure up, this guy took his wife's life to cover his lie. Recently on um, uh, National Geographic, uh, they had a, a four-hour special on 9-11 when uh, the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. And the, the one individual who seemed to be somewhat kind of head of the freedom fighters that were fighting the Soviets was a guy by the name of Osama bin Laden. Uh, and what's ironic is the United States was supplying him with, with uh, all kind of supplies and equipment and, uh, um, uh, and the ability to fight the war uh, as somewhat guerrillas. And as you know, eventually the, the Soviets gave up and left. <clears throat> and uh, bin Laden had this you know, large group of men that were followers of his. And then in 1991, when uh, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, if you recall, Kuwait is right on the Saudi Arabian border. Bin Laden goes to the royal family and says, you know, why don't you let me and all of my men, I can get them, we can, we can transport them here to Saudi Arabia, and we'll, I'll defend you against the Iraqis. And the program pointed out that the, the royal family turned him down and said, instead, we're going to turn to the United States and, and look to them for their protection. And it says, bin Laden was humiliated by this. And it went on to say, this was the roots which has led him to have this hatred for not only Saudi Arabia, but the United States. But look, it's rooted in pride and humility. I don't know how many of you got to hear Jerry Leachman when he spoke uh, back uh, in November, last November. But if you recall, he spoke of two studies that were conducted on why leaders fail. And one came from the Harvard Business Review. Uh, the other, which, was, which focused on business leaders, the other came from Fuller Seminary, which focused on why Christian leaders, uh, men in the ministry, failed. And if you'll recall, he, and he gave me copies of uh, both of these studies, he says the reason for failure in both cases were almost identical. Abuse of power, financial impropriety, adultery. But he says, but both studies says the underlying reason was arrogance on the part of these leaders. In fact, the Harvard Business Review uses these words. These leaders had the, they, they felt and acted as if they were superior to all others. And when you think about it, when a, when a person in a position of high leadership, thinks they are superior to everyone else in the organization. They'll sleep with whomever they want. They'll spend the organization's money however they want. And basically, they'll do whatever they want because you'll see 
you see in them what Lewis said. It's the anti-God state of mind. In other words, they think they're godlike. They can do whatever they want. Now, it's important to realize that pride emanates from a multitude of sources. Wealth, all types of achievement, power, beauty, knowledge. But what's interesting is the most dangerous pride is what Reinhold Niebuhr called the pride of virtue. It's what the Bible calls self-righteousness. I want to share with you a, a, a brief parable that I think will, um, uh, I think, point this out. The parable involves two brothers. These brothers, they're, they're twins, uh, and they're inseparable as they grow up. Uh, they go to high school together. They go to the same colleges together. Uh, and they both apply and are accepted in a medical school. They both choose uh, to become orthopedic surgeons. And uh, they, they, uh, when they finish their residency, they go back to their hometown, a, 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 a mid-sized town, and set up their own practice together as, as, as surgeons. And their, uh, their practice just it flourishes, and they prosper, and they do real well. Uh, they both build nice houses in a, in a neighborhood uh, not far from each other. They both have families. And then one day, one of the brothers has an opportunity to buy this choice piece of property on top of this hill that overlooks the town. And he, he decides to buy the property and makes the decision, I'm going to build my dream home. I'm going to build a show place. It's going to be the most beautiful house in this town, and everybody will know it. And he builds, it looks like the Parthenon sitting up on the hill overlooking the city. And he has tennis courts and a big swimming pool and stables with horses. And everybody down below can look up and see it. And every morning he wakes up. He walks out on the balcony of his home and he looks down on the town feeling really good and, and very proud that he lives in the show place of the town and feels far superior to all others because he has made a statement. But also every morning, that brother of his wakes up and looks up and sees his brother's house upon the hill. And he, every morning he says, says to himself, that pompous, arrogant brother of mine, he's so arrogant, he's so full of himself. He ought to live like me. He didn't have to move out of this house down here. You know, he ought to be giving more of his money to the church and to charity and to the community. Instead, he spends it all on himself and all to inflate his ego. Now, in this parable, both of these men are guilty of pride. One over his wealth, the other over his good works. Both of them, you see, compare themselves. The one compares himself and his, his property to everybody else's in the, in the community. The second brother compares himself to the, to, the, to the brother that lives up on the hill. He compares his, the, the way he's chosen to live his life, his lifestyle. My lifestyle is better than his. My life is so much morally superior than his. But it's interesting, one is easy to detect. You can detect conspicuous consumption. When somebody tries to just buy something to impress, you see it. But this second guy's, I mean, he was completely blind 
to the pride of self-righteousness. Because in his mind, I'm doing so much good. You know, I'm, I'm living the good life. I'm giving money away. I live um, moderately. And he was proud of his good works. And that's so difficult to detect. You see, it's the pride of virtue or the self-righteousness that I mentioned that Jesus seemed to direct so much of his, uh, his scorching words. Now, let me read to you from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will, will reward you. When you pray, <clears throat> you're not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now here Jesus is speaking of two very noble and very spiritual activities. One, giving to the poor. The other, praying. Yet he's saying very clearly, if the motive behind these activities is to be honored by men or to impress others, it's an abomination. It's like Martin Luther said at a certain point in his life, he recognized that he was giving and helping the poor. But he says, I realized I was doing it for all the wrong reasons. He said, I realized I didn't help the poor to help the poor. I do it so I can feel noble, so I can be recognized. I do it for me out of pride and self-centeredness. So you, do you see the danger? You know, that's a good question. Why do we do good? Why do we do good deeds? Many people have no idea that their lives are completely out of sync with Christ. Because their inner thought is, I go to church, I give, I do good things. But why? One thing we know for certain, guys, is that a person can lead a very good, a very moral, a very religious life, but at the same time be spiritually lost and spiritually dead. And we know that that can happen because we see it in the lives of the Pharisees. Jesus says, you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. Dr. Tim Keller contends that the church is full of these type people who truly do not get the gospel. They have that pride of virtue, that self-righteousness. It's like the Pharisees. It's, it's important to understand. The Pharisees believed they did not need a Savior because they were going to save themselves. And yet God says, no man can save himself. That's why Christ came into the world as a Savior to save us who need forgiveness. I want to close by reading one final thought. Um, it comes from a guy by the name of um, Anthony DeMello. DeMello is from India, and so he grew up in the eastern part of the world. 
but apparently, uh, I believe now lives in the States and has become a Christian. Now listen, this is really powerful. He starts by, by quoting from John, uh, Matthew 16, where he says, For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? He says, Recall the kind of feeling you have when someone praises you, when you are approved, accepted, applauded, and contrast that with the kind of feeling that arises within you when you look at the sunset or the sunrise or nature in general or when you read a book or watch a movie that you thoroughly enjoy. Get the taste of this feeling and contrast it with the first, namely the one that was generated within you when you were praised. Understand that the first type of feeling comes from self-glorification, self-promotion. It's a worldly feeling. The second comes from self-fulfillment. It's a feeling of the soul. Here's another contrast. Recall the kind of feeling you have when you succeed, when you have made it, when you get to the top, when you win a game or a bet or an argument, and contrast it with the kind of feeling you get when you really enjoy the job you're doing. You're absorbed in it, the action that you're currently engaged in. And once again, notice the qualitative difference between the worldly feeling and the soul feeling. Yet another contrast. Remember what you felt like when you had power. You were the boss. People looked up to you, took orders from you, or when, or when you were popular. And contrast that worldly feeling with the feeling of intimacy, companionship, the times you thoroughly enjoyed yourself in the company of a friend or with a group in which was fun and laughter. Having done this, attempt to understand the true nature of worldly feelings, namely the feeling of self-promotion, self-glorification. They are not natural. They were invented by your society and your culture to make you productive and make you controllable. These feelings do not produce the nourishment and happiness that is produced when one contemplates nature or enjoys the company of one's friends or one's work. They were meant to produce thrills, excitement, but also emptiness. Then observe yourself in the course of a day or a week and think how many actions of yours are performed, how many activities engaged in that are uncontaminated by the desire for these thrills, these excitements that only produce emptiness, the desire for attention, approval, fame, popularity, success, or power. And take a look at the people around you. Is there a single one of them who has not become addicted to these worldly feelings? A single one who is not controlled by them, hungers for them, spends every minute of his or her waking life consciously or unconsciously seeking them? When you see this, you will understand how people attempt to gain the whole world, but in the process, they lose their souls. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the fact that you reveal to us our true nature in your word, that we do struggle with this issue of pride, that we are always comparing ourselves to each other. We're always wondering, do I measure up in the eyes of my peers? Lord, I pray that you would begin the process of setting us free from this and that we would understand that you are God and that we're not that you are God and that we are needy of you, that we are frail, weak creatures in need of you, our Heavenly Father. We thank you for these things in Christ's name. Amen.
You've been listening to the Reliable Truth Podcast with Richard E. Simmons III, founding director of the Center for Executive Leadership in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources, please visit our website at www.richardesimmons3.com or by email to richard at richardesimmons3.com.